This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Pony Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or category from one of those episodes. And at the end we have a quiz. And this week, we are talking about the second week of the 2020 Teachers Tournament, June 1 through 5. Uh, these are the semifinal uh, games and the final two-day total point affair. As always, it is my goal to say two-day total point affair as many times as possible. As it is Alex's goal, <laughs> I'm fairly <certain. laughs> He doesn't seem like the type, but it makes you wonder if he knows somebody has a drinking game going at home. Probably not. He just has Probably not. Not Alex. It's only that, you know, he's only been doing this for 36 years. I'm sure he doesn't have his, you know, uh, entrenched ways or anything. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So on Monday, we get the contestants Katie Labarge, a high school science teacher from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Will Satterwhite, an 8th through 12th grade band and choir teacher from Vinton, Virginia. And John Ho Kim, a high school math teacher from Lombard, Illinois. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Kinder Garden, Generations of Little Women, Constellations, Homophonic Pairs, Check Your Calendar, and In the Year 2000. Have you ever listened to Flight of the Concords? I have not, although I know that that's a personal failing of mine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're going to have to reevaluate this podcast, but, uh, that just makes me think there's a, they have a song about like the robot apocalypse and Hmm. it's set in the year 2000 and it was made in like 2004. So, uh, yeah, this, uh, this board yet again reminded me that I really ought to read Little Women at some point in my life. Mm Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I don't know. It never interested me. Mm. But I know it's an important book and I should read it. Yeah. Um, at, at this point, you, I, could, I would say maybe you could hold off uh, for a little bit and then read it to your daughters at some point. Yeah, probably. Um, probably. Yeah. Um, or you could go ahead and read it now. I loved Little Women growing up. Loved Little Women. And I love this category. I didn't know the $800 clue in the Generations of Little Women category. The clue was before George Cukart directed her in Adam's Rib and the Philadelphia Story, he cast this actress as Joe for the 1933 film adaptation. I guess I should have should have known her from the Philadelphia Story. Yeah, that's Catherine Hepburn. Oh, yeah. Um, I knew her from yeah. Adam's Rib. But this category um, hit uh, four different film versions of Little Women, um, the 1933, the 1949, the 1994, and the 2019. Which is cool. I actually got, I ended up getting four out of five, but that's because most of the questions were not about the story. It was peripheral Mm -hmm. to the adaptations of Little Women. So the only one I missed was the $400 clue because it actually asked about like a name of a character. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I almost missed that because it's a little bit of a surprise that Amy ends up marrying Laurie in the end. Well, spoilers, yeah. right? Jeez. Well, <laughs> uh, there was a there was a um, Twitter minor Twitter spoiler controversy in the Jeopardy world 
back when the Greta Gerwig Little Women came out, uh, former Jeopardy champion uh, Jennifer Morrow tweeted a joke that alluded to Beth dying, and people got, like, legit outraged. <laughs> like, even I know that. <laughs> yeah. I know that because my brother had to read it when he was in elementary school, and... When Beth died, it was referred to kind of euphemistically. I don't remember what the actual, like, terminology was. But mm-hmm. he just, like, didn't understand that she had died because he was in, like, I don't know, third grade or whatever. And mm-hmm. it was just, like, a phrase he'd never heard before. Yeah. And so he was, like, talking about the book with my mom, and she said something about Beth dying. And he's like, Beth didn't die? And she's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty sure she did. <laughs> it's kind of an important part of the book. <laughs> yeah. You were going to say something about Greta Gerwig? Oh, yeah. Oh, the Greta Gerwig version of Little Women was great. Although, um, I think it sort of relied on people already being fans. I think it would have been hard to follow if I hadn't known mm. the book. Yeah, I, knew, I, I know there's controversy around it. But like, I, like I've said, I, I am blissfully unaware of most things Little Women. Well, it's a, it's a worthy read. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this has been book recommendations with Emily round one. I think there's more coming because I, I liked the boards this week. Yeah. <laughs> so we get the daily double actually really early in the round. It's at pick number four uh, in the constellations category. It's at the $800 level and uh, Jong Ho finds it. He only has 800, but he wagers a thousand. Will is still at zero and Katie's at 400. He gets the clue. Lepus, the hare, is the quarry of this nearby constellation. And he guesses what is Leo, but it is Orion, the hunter. So he drops down to negative 200, but that's not a a huge deal at this point in the game. Mm -hmm. There was a triple stumper in the year 2000 category. That that category was, I don't know, it felt felt weird. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I don't know about you, I don't feel like I am at all in any way old, but thinking back, it's like, oh, that was 20 years ago, and I remember all this yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. But the the $1,000 clue was a triple stumper. After 136 years underwater, this Confederate submarine was raised intact to the surface in August. Uh, John Ho guessed what is the Merrimack, which I think led Will down the wrong path, because then he rang in and said, what is the Monitor? Mm-hmm. Both of which are not submarines. They were ironclads, not submarines. Mm-hmm. And uh, the correct response is the Hunley, which if you've never looked into the Hunley, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. The engineering that had to go into that. Uh, although it did end up being ultimately unsuccessful <laughs> in mm-hmm. in terms of like they all drown. So yeah. it was not 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 the best, but for the time, pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I'm intrigued. Yes. And a little bit of trivia too, in case you didn't know, the Merrimack was not technically the Merrimack uh, when it was an ironclad. It was the USS Merrimack when it was part of when it was a Union ship, and then when the Union pulled out of Virginia, they burnt it to the waterline. Uh, and when the Confederates took over the port, they built it back up as an ironclad and uh, rechristened it the CSS Virginia. So technically, hmm. the ironclads were the Virginia and the Monitor, but oh, Merrimack okay. is Merrimack is con- is like so commonly used that it's acceptable, I guess. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Jonko has 2,000, Will is in the lead at 4,600, and Katie is right behind him at 4,400. And we get the categories U.S. Government, the AV Club, Pop Music, A Container Full of Words, 19th Century English Literature, and Nation's Second Largest Cities. 
which I loved. I mm-hmm. loved that category. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I am not too surprised. Um, Except for the $2,000 clue, they just gave you another map. It starts with a C, and it looks like a C. Yes. A wise man told me that once. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. It is Croatian. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the clue there was, um, at one time, a major Byzantine city split is today the second largest city in this country that split from Yugoslavia in 1991. They gave you the map with the country highlighted, and Kyle taught me a demonic a while back, so I knew that was Croatia, and so did John Ho. Yeah. The clue was entirely irrelevant. It's just a map. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> but maybe split would have been too hard by itself. So, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't um, have gotten it without the map. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I would, I would not have gotten it without the map. Dilly Double number two comes up in the category the AV Club at the $1,200 level. Will finds it and wagers 3800 of his 6200 Uh Jong-ho and Katie both have 5600 at that point. And he gets the clue, almost 500 concerti from this Venetian survive today. And... He knows that is Vivaldi. Yep. Which Alex, of course, comments on him being a musician. So I'm sure that helped. Mm-hmm. I mean, we learn about Vivaldi in our, you know, college mm-hmm. music history classes, the Red Priest. Uh, but also the the category kind of points you to that sort of being the only option. Right. Because uh, it's the AV club. So mm-hmm. I'm sure I could come up with some, but off the top of my head, the only composer I could think of that whose initials are AV is Antonio Vivaldi. Mm-hmm. So. The third Daily Double is pick number 17. Uh, It's in the U.S. government category at the $1,600 level. Will finds this one as well. He has worked himself out to a pretty good lead. He's at $14,800. Zhang Ho is at $10,400. And Katie is at $8,400. And he wagers $5,630. Probably an important number to him. And he gets the clue. One task of this government commission opened in 1915 is to protect consumers from con games. And he guessed what is the SEC, which is, you know, everyone knows it's a Southeastern Conference, but uh, <laughs> it is the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah, I did not know that one. Uh, I did not either. I, got, I went to FDIC and was like, well, that's probably it. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, uh, Will has 13,170. Katie is in second place with 11,600. Jong Ho has 11,200. And we get the final Jeopardy category, European history. The clue is, once Europe's leading military power and later the largest state in Germany, it was abolished by the Allies in 1947. And, uh, Unlike quarterfinals, there's no advantage to having a lot of money but not winning right. in semifinals. You, whoever wins advances, so you're you're wagering for the win. Yeah, we're back case. to like normal wagering yeah. strategy here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John Ho has wagered eight thousand and correctly responds. What is Prussia? Katie has wagered ten thousand eight hundred one but has guessed what is Bavaria. But Will, who went in with the lead, knows that it is Prussia and has wagered $10,031. So he is the winner and gets one of those uh, final slots. That's right. 
Don't know if this helped him, but a little bit of trivia. Uh, Frederick the Great, Frederick II of Prussia, was also a composer and a, a very accomplished flautist. Hmm. Just a little bit of little bit of information there. I did not know that. We learned about his uh, flute concerto in music history. Hmm. Anyway, so yeah, Will is moving on. Band and choir, yeah. <laughs> so one of my one of my music teachers made it through, and that takes us to Tuesday. On Tuesday, we have Jenna Hall, a high school English teacher from Seaside, California. Amanda Baltimore, a 7th grade science teacher from Cocoa Beach, Florida. And Maggie Quaite, a middle school humanities teacher from New York, New York. And we get the Jeopardy round categories of Hall Monitor, Heaven or Hell, Birds of Prey, Words from Old English, Going on Vacation, and I'm Full of NV, where NV are initials that are in quotation marks. Perplexingly, I got four out of five on a sports category in the hall monitor category. Nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, this uh, this uh, set of contestants, three women, uh, did pretty well on it also. So that's nice to see. <laughs> the Jeopardy contestants have a certain reputation. Yes. Regarding sports categories and... Uh, Female Jeopardy contestants, perhaps even more so. Um, they did miss the eight hundred and thousand, but they they did the two hundred, four hundred, and six hundred. The thousand uh, dollar clue, uh, that one was a little it was it was a little confusing to kind of parse. Um, you have yeah, to, you have to work through it. In in two thousand nineteen, Edgar Martinez and Harold Baines were elected to Baseball's Hall of Fame for playing this non defensive position, which that can be kind of a confusing. Uh, terminology but in baseball every position is defensive because everyone who bats on offense should also play the field on defense Mm -hmm. except in the american league where you have designated hitters right so i remembered that one i was pleased with myself nice um the daily double comes up as the 11th pick in the heaven or hell category at the 800 level maggie finds it and Makes it a true daily double with 3,000. Um, Amanda has 1,200 at that point, and Jenna has 600. Maggie gets the clue. The line, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is from this 17th century poem. And she struggled with it for quite a while. And at the very last second said, what is paradise lost? And you could sort of tell that she was just saying something rather than saying nothing. Was that your impression, Kyle? It did seem that Um, way. It seemed like she was just guessing. Yeah, um, but that was correct. Uh, so that was thrilling, I thought. Yes. We talked about Paradise Lost a little bit, right? You had a question about it? That's right. Yes. Yes, we had a question about that recently. Two weeks ago, I guess. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Maggie, in general, was, um, emotive and, like, uh, chatty a little bit as a contestant. You could, you could Mm -hmm. really, you know, sort of, you, you could, you could tell how she was, uh, how she was feeling about things and, you know. She, yeah. yeah, yeah. She also ran that heaven or hell category. I missed it because the daily double was right in the middle of it. But yep. yeah, she ran that category. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Maggie is in a very solid lead with eleven thousand. Uh, Amanda has two thousand. Jenna has one thousand. And we get the double Jeopardy categories: women authors, greatest hits from the Supremes, the Human Body, documentaries. The old university try and before and after. 
which we should we should address the before and after right now. The sixteen hundred dollar clue. I don't know about you. Oh. <laughs> definitely gave me nightmares. And I saw a lot of buzz about it on social media. The clue is twenty twelve male stripper cinematic saga that went on to be our seventieth Secretary of State. Maggie gets it with Magic Mike Pompeo. <laughs> And, and, then, and and very clearly uh, expresses her displeasure. Yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> um, and then Alex responded, "We'll get mail." I yeah. know. <laughs> um, so apparently, uh, apparently, he anticipates that the audience is going to express their displeasure also. Yes. There was lots of good stuff in the women authors category. I like seeing um, Sandra Cisneros in there. Um, yeah. I, uh, I got it, um, but that also feels like a little bit of a departure from, uh, Jeopardy's normally, uh, very Anglo traditional literature trivia canon. True. Um, So, yeah, so I appreciated. Yeah, I haven't done the research, but I don't know the last time Sandra Cisneros would have been a response on Jeopardy. Ooh, I can check that. See, 2018. Okay, yep. so fairly yeah, recently. she came up in 2018. She came up in 2016. All right, I take it back. Jeopardy talks about Sandra Cisneros regularly. Okay, um, okay, yeah. But yeah. You, but you um, are right. I mean, most of the most of when they're talking about authors in who are not contemporary, it it tends to be white people. Yeah. yeah so so uh yeah, and just great category all around. I thought well-balanced around like uh, there was a one to identify by her picture. There were somewhere you had to identify the author based on the name of the work or based on um, information about her biography. So the good set of different angles there, I thought. Yep. Uh, The second daily double comes in the greatest hits from the Supremes. Uh, This is talking about Supreme court justices. Mm -hmm. It's the 25th pick in the round. So it shows up pretty late. Uh, it's the $1,200 clue. Jenna finds it. Uh, she is at 5800 At this point, Maggie is way out in the lead at 24200 and Amanda's at 3600 Jenna wagers $2,000. Um, I, I kind of feel like the only option you had at that point was to go all in just to get within striking distance of Maggie. Right. But... I mean, even, even mathematically, um, I don't think if she'd gotten it right, would there have been enough money left on the board for her it... to... Get within striking distance. Even. It would have been very close if she yeah. had, if she did. But she gets the clue in Marbury versus Madison. John Marshall criticized this sitting president for flouting the law, uh, and she takes a while and doesn't know. Uh, she guesses who is Taft, uh, but that's Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Um, Marbury versus Madison was about the midnight appointments. Of mm-hmm. John Adams as he was leaving office, yeah, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. that sounds right. Don't don't remember all the details, but yeah, I couldn't remember specifically which president. I remembered that it was a very very early mm-hmm. uh, Supreme Court case. You know, one of their first really significant cases. Yeah, and so I thought. I thought it's not Madison, and maybe it's Jefferson, maybe it's Monroe, maybe it's Adams, and I ended up guessing Monroe for whatever reason. Mm. Um, yeah. Yes. It is the case that established judicial review, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly. That sounds right. 
We've got Daily Double number three in the documentaries category as the 29th pick. Maggie finds it and uh, wagers 5,000 of her 27,400 to Amanda's 4,800 and Jenna's 3,800. She gets the clue. This 1994 documentary follows two inner city Chicago kids who aspire to become pro basketball players. She guesses what is love and basketball, but the correct response there is hoop dreams. Yeah. She knew that was wrong, but... Yeah. Again, better to say something than nothing. It worked for mm-hmm. her earlier. <laughs> yeah. So. Yep. So even with uh, even losing 5,000 there, she still goes into Final Jeopardy with not just a lock game, but like a... Amanda would have had to do more than five times. Mm-hmm. The amount she had in order to reach Maggie, it just, it was a yeah a very impressive game for Maggie. So she yeah. she's going in with 24,200, Amanda's at 4,800, and Jenna's at 3,800. They get the category American Firsts, and the clue, John Ledyard sailing on Captain Cook's last voyage in search of the Northwest Passage was the first American to land at what are now these two states. Jenna got it correct with what are Hawaii and Alaska. She bet it all. Amanda also got it correct with Alaska and Hawaii, and she wagered 22-22. And Maggie got it incorrect with what are California and Oregon, but she only wagered 18. Not that any of that really mattered, because Maggie is moving on to the finals. That's right. And on Wednesday, we have our last set of three semifinalist contestants. Uh, We have Lauren Schneider-Lipton, a high school health teacher from Seattle, Washington. Sam Mattson, a high school English teacher from Cookville, Tennessee. And Ben Henry, a 7th through 12th grade vocal music teacher from St. Clair Shores, Michigan. And the Jeopardy round categories are Politics, Who Said It? Boulder Dash? Mysteries and Thrillers? Mustard or Mayo? Is it bigger than a chicken? And DE plus three. Um, so each correct response is going to be a five-letter word that begins with DE. The is it bigger than a chicken category, I guess, was sort of tongue-in-cheek about trivia because, like, that had absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah. It was either talking about really big things or really small things, I guess. I just, the category did not did not lend any any aid at all to the clues. Yeah. I sort of wonder whether is it bigger than a chicken is a reference to something, you know? Probably. There's no way of finding out, though. <laughs> BBC Two Wildlife Quiz Show Curious Creatures has a round called Is It Bigger Than a Chicken? Are they... <laughs> that's a really, like... That's a deep <laughs> reference there. <laughs> I... Yeah, all right. Um, I, that may be where they got it from. Although that's, it feels sort of uh, really, you know, like they're just amusing themselves with an inside joke, you know. I yeah. hope I hope that's what it is, because if that is the case, that is awesome. <laughs> they just really, really like game shows, okay? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, we had a very important clue in here. In the Boulder Dash category. Yeah, we did. $400 level. The clue is, he's been known to try and kill a certain roadrunner with boulders, but the big rocks usually end up coming his way. Now, uh, Sam got in and he got it correct. That is the 
a very wily, wild E coyote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the E is actually his middle initial. I'm not sure if you knew that. I did know that. <laughs> uh, listeners, um, that was Kyle's and my final Jeopardy. We both got it correct. Uh, and so Kyle had the lead in one, but I was the only one who spelled it correctly. Um, so, But that's... it was still phonetically correct. It was phonetically correct. And I will say, I, fe- I think I talked, I don't know if I actually kept this in the episode. We talked about this like very early on, I think. It took me forever to get to that answer or that correct response because when they'd revealed the category I had in my head, like the category was just animal characters, but mm-hmm. my brain was convinced that it said literary animal characters. Mm. So when the clue came up, I was going through like Winnie the Pooh and like E.B. White characters. And I was like, what is going on? Because it was talking about like rehydrated boulders and whatever nonsense that, you know, is in mm-hmm. Looney Tunes. Yeah. And it, I just, I, I read it and I reread it and I reread it. And then I was, I like shook my head and looked at the category again and it didn't say literary. And I was like, oh, oh, cause I'd heard you and Raymond like immediately writing stuff down. I was like, what am I missing? What am I, if it's so easy, what am I missing? So it was in the last five seconds that I was writing it down. And it was at- my dearest hope that you had only gotten like the first three letters out. <laughs> and as I was writing, as I was writing Coyote, I looked at, I was looking at it and I was like, it's Y-L-E, but I don't have time to change that. Mm-hmm. Like, I know, I know how to spell this right, but I just, I'm like, I'm just running on adrenaline right now. Yeah. And luckily it was phonetic. So mm-hmm. luckily, right. luckily for me, I should say, unluckily <laughs> for Emily. Yeah. I realize I realize um, we had two right. very they, different sides of that experience. They told us the rules mm-hmm. and it fit with the rules. Although I did appreciate whoever it was on Twitter who asked if they would accept Harry S. Truman if somebody had spelled Harry S. as one word, H-A-R-R-I-E-S-S. Interesting. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting counter argument. Um, but I, I did not feel like uh, uh, th- i mean you know those are the rules the rules are the rules you knew the answer yes. um yeah now that we've talked about that for way too long and and i know all of our listeners are very interested in that particular let's uh, rehash this forever. yeah let, let's let's talk about this 90 seconds of our life over and over again i liked the mysteries and thrillers category mm-hmm. i think i somehow i didn't get ages for homicide the 200 dollar clue i was like ages oh. for what? <laughs> just for what? For hurting? It just for hurting. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I just went completely blank. Um, but uh, I recently read uh, Murder on the Orient Express. That was the six hundred dollar mm-hmm. clue. Um, after a fatal, fatal stabbing in this classic mystery, Hercule Poirot asks for a plan of the Istanbul Calais coach. And I, I just read that one a few months ago. Um, it was a delightful introduction to Agatha Christie. And I stayed up like all night reading the $800 response. Um, the clue was Time Magazine named this Gillian Flynn thriller one of the 10 best fiction books of the 2010s. Uh, that's Gone Girl. So yeah, I would recommend either of them or both. So the Daily Double shows up in the politics who said it category. It is the second pick. Uh, Lauren finds it. Uh, she's at 600. Everyone else is at zero. Uh, she wagers 1,000. Why not? It's the right call. And she gets the clue, 1950. I have here in my hand a list of 205 that were known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party. 
And Alex gave a really, really heavy accent on that. Lauren gets it right. She knows that it's McCarthy. I don't know that I've ever heard that I've actually, like, watched the videos or heard McCarthy's voice, but that's not what I would have expected his voice to sound like. Hmm. I have watched... I think I watched a documentary called Point of Order about McCarthy for my rhetoric class in college, but I don't especially remember his voice. It sounded right to me, though. Okay. I think right. I think it sounded right. Yeah, so she gets it right, but it's yeah. uh, she adds a thousand over the course mm-hmm. of the game. That's not a huge advantage but yeah and ben was just a really strong player throughout this mm-hmm. uh strong on the buzzer good night. i mean all of them are are strong players um yeah. but yeah so at the end of the jeopardy round ben has 8400 over lauren's 5000 and sam's 2400 and they get the double jeopardy categories let's look at some math no thank you abbreviations opera and ballet back in the 20th century hot stuff and fountains. Sam gets the first pick and goes right to the Daily Double, uh, which is at the $800 level of back in the 20th century. He wagers 2400 That's a true Daily Double. Everybody's scores are the same, as Kyle just said, because it's the first pick. He gets the clue. In April 1946, this international organization formally gave up the ghost, though it did give a lot of its stuff to its replacement. And he correctly responds, what is the League of Nations? Yeah. Man. Yeah. There are a lot of stuff that we've talked about in Deep Dives coming up. Yeah. That's very gratifying. It is extremely gratifying. (laughs) (laughs) I loved the opera and ballet category. Shocker. I know you did. I know, right? I bet Ben was really frustrated when he couldn't get in on the buzzer on a lot of these. That's what I was thinking. I was like, man, how is the choir teacher like not just like fuming that he didn't get Madame Butterfly at the $800 mm-hmm. level. This Puccini opera is set in Nagasaki in the early 1900s. Like, oh, man. Yeah, he just, I think he got, he must have got beat on the buzzer, because there's no way he didn't know those those operas. However, the $2,000 clue, he he missed it. Uh, the two parts of this Stravinsky ballet are Adoration of the Earth and The Sacrifice. He rang in and guessed what is the Firebird, but Lauren got Rite of Spring. Mm-hmm. Which is the correct response, yeah. I think I, I put in some Firebird in one of our episodes. If I, I believe you did, yeah. yes. Uh, which is great. It's a great great ballet, great music. But uh, no, Rite of Spring is about the about like a very primitive uh, virgin sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Great music, though. If you've never listened to Rite of Spring, give it a shot. Mm-hmm. There's a triple stumper in the hot stuff category that uh, I'm sure you got. Oh, yeah. $1,600 level. In this book of the Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into a furnace, but the intense heat does not harm them. Mm-hmm. The, that's, that's the right. book of Daniel. That's right. And uh, Christians like to note that there is a mysterious additional figure who appears with them in the furnace, because uh, then Christians like to be like, oh, that's Jesus. It's Jesus, yeah. So the third Daily Double comes at nearly the end of the round. It's pick number 29. Lauren finds it. She is at 17,000, right behind Ben's 18,800, and Sam is at 7,200. She wagers 2,000 to try and just get ahead of Ben without risking too much. And she gets, fittingly, the Latona Fountain, built by Louis Fourteenth in Versailles, was named for the mother of this Roman god. She doesn't know, she guesses who is Jupiter, but the correct response is Apollo. Uh, there was a clue in there, but I think also a misdirect. 
Mm. Um, the clue would be fittingly for Louis the Fourteenth, um, the because Sun the King. Sun, yeah, the Sun King, and Apollo came to be known as the the Sun God, although originally he was not. And maybe that's why they specified as Roman. Because mm-hmm. uh, in the original Greek, Helios was the god of the sun, and Apollo was the god of light. But hmm. uh, throughout the centuries, the Greek civilization rose and fell, and then the Romans adopted their pantheon, and eventually all of the gods kind of got subsumed into Apollo. And really, by the time you get to like you know the biblical era, Romans are essentially monotheistic in terms of like Apollo is the supreme god. Mm-hmm. And he is the sun god at that point. So maybe, maybe the, I thought that the Roman designation was the misdirect because Apollo is Apollo in both Roman and Greek. Yeah. But perhaps because he was the sun god to the Romans, that's what that clue is pointing at. Yeah, but I could see that leading you to think that you can't choose Apollo because they wouldn't specify. Right. They wouldn't specify if it weren't a... Someone with uh, different names in in Roman and Greek mythologies. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Ben is in the lead with 20,800. Lauren has 15,000. Sam has 7,200. And we get the final Jeopardy category, European Landmarks. And the clue is, as described in an 1831 book, it has three recessed and pointed doorways, immense central rose window, Two dark and massive towers. And after they have finished writing their answers, Alex notes that sadly it was in the news this past year um, because of the fire there. Uh, Sam has wagered everything but a dollar and correctly responds, what is Notre Dame? Lauren has wagered absolutely everything, 15,000, and responds, what is Notre Dame? Not the most strategic wager in this case. You probably want to keep it small um, to stay above third place. Try and let first place drop below you if he misses. He has not missed. Uh, ben has made a cover bet of 9,201 and correctly responds, what is Notre Dame? And so he gets that third finalist slot. Yeah. So we got the three people we were pulling for. Yes. Yes, we did. We got the two. New Yorker and the two music teachers. That's Right, and they are facing off for two days, and this is such a delightful set of contestants, I thought. Yeah, it the, was the whole, Yeah, the, the whole set of contestants was, was delightful, but these, these three I thought were fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everything about the teachers' tournament is great. Yeah, it felt, it felt really cool to have all three of the people that we, last week, were just kind of like, yeah, this is who I'm pulling for. Yeah. It worked out. Clearly, they were listening to the podcast last week, so they uh, mm-hmm. they decided and to do it. And then they rigged the game yep. as as one does. Yep, one does not do that, uh, listeners. Just just so we're clear here. That what do you super mean? Illegal. What do you mean? There's no way that so and so could have possibly lost <sighs> to someone else who beat them. Yep. Yeah. Jeopardy goes to great pains to um, eliminate any conceivable possibility of intentional or unintentional influence on the outcomes of the games. Yep. Um, I think we talked about that, though, before, so yeah. don't need to rehash um, Yeah. The thing that blows people's minds when I tell them is um, they bring in two makeup artists to do the contestants' makeup in the morning, but then one of the two makeup artists goes to do Alex Trebek's makeup, and Alex has seen the material... 
when he's getting his makeup done. And so then that makeup artist is like on the other side of the wall of separation and can never have contact with con- the contestants again. And all of your touch-ups are done by the other the makeup other artist, ones. you yep. know, very attentive to absolute propriety in that regard. Oh yeah. Anyway, on Thursday we get for the final game one, Will Satterwhite, an eighth through 12th grade band and choir teacher from Vinton, Virginia. Maggie Quaite, a middle school humanities teacher from New York, New York, and Ben Henry, a 7th through 12th grade vocal music teacher from St. Clair Shores, Michigan. Could have done with a little more representation from the West, but I'll live with it. It's fine. And we get the categories in the Jeopardy round of We Miss You, Mr. Rogers. We really do. Amen. Uh, The Natural World. Asia. Emmys for Writing. Recreational activities and shortened slang. How familiar are you with the uh, Saturday Night Live um, celebrity Jeopardy skits? Medium familiar. I'm, fami- I'm familiar enough. Why do you ask? Because uh, I just th- I watched this one like way back, like when I was you know 13 or something, and it, it has always stuck with me. There was one where there's a an audio daily double, and whoever mm-hmm. gets it. Um, I think it was someone impersonating French Stewart that's sticking in my mind, but I could be wrong. They get an audio daily double, and the clue is, identify this continent. And a voice says, Asia. <laughs> and he's just like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so that, that has always stuck with me as a Jeopardy thing, to just be Asia. <laughs> I did not remember that moment, but yeah. Anyway. On the shortened slang category at the $600 level, the clue was, it's a four-letter shortened way to say very apparent. And I immediately said, obvs, which to me is spelled Um, Mm O-B-V-S. Maggie rang in and responded, uh, what is obvi? And that seemed to be the answer they were looking for. Probably they, maybe they would have accepted either. I don't know. I feel like they would have to accept it pretty much right off the bat, uh, even if it wasn't the answer they were looking for, because that's kind of a vague clue. You know, that's not a mm-hmm. fact. That's right. shortened slang, which could be anything in any right. given and if you're going to Yeah, if you're going to use slang words as a trivia category, you have to accept anything that is used as a slang word. Really? Think in any... Anywhere. Right. Anywhere. Yeah. yeah. That's a dangerous category, I think. But, mm-hmm. but I mean, the clues were good enough. The answers they gave, I was like, yep, that's, that makes sense. Yep. That's, that's great. Mm-hmm. So. We get the first daily double pretty early uh, as the third pick at the $1,000 level of Asia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Will finds it and has only $800 at that point. Uh, wagers 1000 Ben has 6 100, Maggie has zero. He gets the clue. 16 foot stingrays can be found in the waters of this 2,700 mile long Indo Chinese river. And he guesses what is the Yellow River. The correct response there is the Mekong. So he drops a little below zero, but works out. Yeah. Mr. Rogers' category was nice. I found it accessible. Mm-hmm. Just liked thinking about Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Listeners, if you are, well, you're probably unaware, Emily gave, did a sermon series on Mr. Rogers pretty soon after our, our show aired, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, fall of 2018, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I did a I uh, did a sermon series, five sermons um, focused around um, some of his best loved songs. Yeah, just in general, I'm a big fan. Um, he was an ordained minister who really approached his work on television as something that he felt called to and did as a ministry, you know, kind of uh, supporting the emotional lives and development of children throughout the country. Mm -hmm. So I'm a huge fan. I didn't know about the $600 level um, clue. Margaret Hamilton visited Mr. Rogers in 1975 to help kids understand make-believe and not fear this Wizard of Oz character. Um, oh. Ben knew that one. It was the Wicked Witch of the West. Mm-hmm. And he rang in and said, well, who is the Wicked Witch? And was being ruled correctly, as he thought to add, of the West. True. Because there is a Wicked Witch of the East. That's right. She uh, She's the one who is under the house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. When Dorothy arrives. That is a house. euphemistic way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a real pro-Dorothy kind of stance. <laughs> Even though she shows up in the Land of Oz and is immediately a murderer. Yeah. You really got to re-examine our heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Dorothy's hands are pretty clean. Um, I don't know. I guess the musical Wicked re-examines our heroes, right? That's true. Uh, or, or, or really uh, our villains, I guess. Villains, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, she shows up, kills someone who had done nothing to her. And later on, she gets so high on opium that she passes out. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds suspicious to me. I guess you're probably right. And her whole um, goal is to go and, like, murder some other lady. Yeah, that's true. All because she yeah. stole her, you know, someone else. She stole a dead woman's shoes. It's changing everything I thought I knew about the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Let's look, let's look behind the curtain. That's right. Yeah. All right, well, don't say anything bad about Friday Night Lights, which was a $1,000 level clue of the the (laughs) The, Emmys for writing category. The only thing I can say about Friday Night Lights is that I've never seen it, so. Ah, it has has a special place in my heart. Oh, okay. What's it? Um, Clear eyes, full hearts can't lose or whatever that is? Yep, that is is the slogan. Lovely, touching show about... Football! Yeah, a high school, a Texas... Town and its high school football team. All right. At the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Will in the lead with 5,200. Ben is in second place with 4,600. Maggie has 4,400, so they are all really close. We get the categories Summer Reading, World Flags, Throwing You a Curve, Forgetful Sequels, Brother, and Can You Spare a Rhyme? Every correct response will rhyme with the word spare. And I thought the forgetful sequels category was an interesting premise. All the clues in that category were about sequels that ignored some previous movie or movies in the the franchise or the timeline. Yeah. We had um, Halloween, the 2018 horror movie. Uh, is a sequel to the 1978 ori- original and skips over the 2002 sequel where Jamie Lee Curtis's character is killed. We had... A lot of horror. A lot of horror. Yeah. Lot of horror. yeah. Uh, the $1,600 level Dark Fate, the latest film in this series, ignores all the sequels after Judgment Day. That's Terminator. So yeah, that was a, I thought it was a kind of a an interesting gimmick I hadn't seen. Yeah. It was Those definitely... things grouped like that before. Yeah, for sure. And summer reading was not about books commonly assigned as summer reading, which is what I was expecting. Um, it was 
books with the word summer in the title. Hmm. Another book category. They really really went hard on literature. It's it's a, almost as if they want everyone to read. It's, uh, it's not that important. As long as you can understand yeah. memes. <laughs> Jeopardy is, is pretty light on the meme comprehension, honestly. It comes up sometimes, sort of. Usually as a gimmick. Yeah. So we get the second Daily Double in the Throwing You a Curve category. It's pick number 12. Meggie finds this one. She is at 7,600. She's in third place behind Will's 8,000 and Ben's 11,800. And she goes all in the way she ought to. That is the play. Mm -hmm. And she gets... The clue, the Phillips curve, shows that wages tend to increase faster as the rate of this goes down. And she guesses what is inflation, but it is in fact unemployment, so she drops mm-hmm. to zero. Which is tough to see, but yeah. there's still there's still money on the board. It's a two-day total point affair. It's a two-day total point affair. It's the only option, especially mm-hmm. on day one. Day one, you yeah. just go you for it. Go for the really big numbers, and if you end up... At zero, you've got the next day to try again. Yep. Ten clues later, we get daily double number three as the 22nd pick at the $800 level of brother. Will finds it and wagers 4,400 of his 9,600. Ben has 14,200 at that point. Maybe has made her way back up to 5,600. Although with that, clue, sorry, with that, with that wager, uh, Maggie had whispered to him, do it. Before he wagered. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Um, He gets the clue. Elliot, brother of this 20th century president, was also father to a first lady. And he correctly responds, uh, who is Teddy Roosevelt. Alex asks if he is sad now that he didn't do it. Maggie chides him that he should have listened to her. (laughs) It seemed like okay. they all got along really well. Yeah, I think so. They they finished Double Jeopardy with really good scores and very close. Ben is at 15,000. Mm-hmm. Meggie's at 13,600. She came back from zero with half the board to 13,600. Mm-hmm. And Will is up at 12,000. Yeah, Meggie's Coriat score for this game is 21,200. Like... Yeah. I have days where I can't get 21,200 with just me and my notepad <laughs> Without <at> competing. <laughs> without anybody else trying to buzz in. Yeah. Like, I just get credit for anything I get right. And, right. you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they get the category Notable Brits. And the clue, on this man's death in a 1935 motorcycle accident, Churchill said his pace of life was faster and more intense than the ordinary. This was a triple stumper, and I did not get it. There's no way I'm... I, I, I don't know. I feel like you must have had to know that he died in a motorcycle accident. I just, I just guessed based on the year and pace of life was faster and more intense than the ordinary. Um, and got it right. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Will wagered 6,000, and he guessed he was Chamberlain, which... <laughs> that's ironic. Uh, <laughs> that was incorrect. Uh, so he drops down to 6,000. Meggie also wagered 6,000, and she guessed who is Aston Martin, who I, I believe that's two different people. Uh, yeah, I think so. But still, that's closer to what I was thinking. I was thinking it's Aston or Martin or Rolls or Royce or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's also incorrect. 
So she drops down to 7,600, and Ben wagered 7,500, and he wagered, or, and he guessed who is Davidson. Uh, but it is, in fact, Lawrence of Arabia, or mm-hmm. T.E. Lawrence. That's right. Which, if you've ever watched the movie, I would not describe the pace as fast and intense. I would describe it as ponderous and perhaps <laughs> agonizingly slow. I tried to watch it once, but I couldn't really get through it. Oh man! Yeah, it's it was it was two VHS tapes, which will give you a hint of when I tried to watch it. It was a while ago. Oh well, sure. Um, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. My mom made me watch it because she's a film buff, and like mm. she prefaced it with, "This is gonna take a while." And we'll have dinner while we watch, so <laughs> at least we have something to do. But it's an important movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, so they all missed it, which puts them still even closer going into Friday. So it really is like anyone's game going into the last game. Yeah, so we have the same contestants with the same occupations as they had uh, the previous day. Um, and <laughs> just heard the scores. Yep. So, in this second day of this two-day total point affair, we get the Jeopardy categories Just Desserts, Literary Hodgepodge, Political Conventions, Control-Alt-Delete, either ALT or DEL will come up in each correct response, Some Quarter Given, and Other Sports. They left two clues on the board in this game, which I thought was really strange for a final yeah. That they wouldn't just go through all the clues, but I guess if you take a while, which doesn't make sense. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's strange to me that there were clues left on the board. But we get another literary category. How did you do in the desserts? I swapped it. Nice. Yeah, yeah I thought yeah. it was pretty straightforward. I thought yeah, the hardest it one. straightforward to me. I thought the hardest one was the $800 clue. Literally, lightning in French, this long, thin, chocolate-covered pastry really gives me a charge. <laughs> I had no idea that eclair meant lightning but Mm -hmm. i still got it based on the description but i prefer new york style cheesecake to japanese style cheesecake but i I went to a restaurant maybe last year that did um a tasting of three styles of cheesecake as dessert it was was pretty indulgent it was good yeah Um, so we had we had new york style japanese style and like the chefs you know sort of italian inspired style cool at the 800 dollar level of control alt delete uh, we had the Bonneville these smooth out nicely over 40 square miles. That's the Bonneville Salt Flats, which I swear I had never heard of until maybe three months ago. Really? And now they are everywhere in my life. I keep hearing references to them. It's, um, I can't remember what you call that phenomenon, where you become aware of something and then you start noticing. Oh, oh yeah. You uh, see it everywhere. Yeah. I don't know it either. There's something for that. Yeah, no, they're in, they're in Utah. Used to be mm-hmm. Great Salt Lake back in, I guess, prehistoric times. It used to be much, much, much bigger, called, and they called it Lake Bonneville. Uh, so mm-hmm. as it dried up over over time, it left all the salt there. Um, so that's the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah. Yeah. It is a cool thing to see once, and then it is extremely boring to drive through every other time. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So we get the Daily Double uh, pretty late. It's pick number 26. It's in the some quarter given category. And this is just about the like the state quarters in, that have been minted. 
Maggie finds it. She is in the lead at 6,400. Ben's at 5,000 and Will is at 800. And she wagers 3,000. She gets the clue. This motto that offers two very different options adorns New Hampshire's quarter. And she knows that right off the bat. That is, of course, live free or die. Mm-hmm. Well, now she wishes she didn't do it. Right. We wishes she had done it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I, I realized, I don't know if, like, on stage and under the lights, I would have accidentally said live free or die hard. <laughs> but <laughs> in my, like, on my couch... I accidentally said live free or die hard. And I was like, oh no. Oh no. That would have been so embarrassing. <laughs> embarrassing, but also like epic, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a great way to go down on a daily double. Yeah, so she leads the way into double jeopardy mm-hmm. with 10,400 to Ben's 5,400 and Will's 1,800. And we get the categories Just Deserts, Publishers, Actors and Actresses, Physics Glossary, All About Art, and Words Coined in the 1920s. They started in the All About Art category. Ben apparently is not an art fan. Because after he got the $800 clue about Monet, he was like, uh, enough of that, and moved on somewhere else. Uh, And then... (laughs) basically left the other clues for last we even left one of them on the board so mm-hmm. yeah i enjoyed the deserts category also because it's another like basically geography category mm-hmm. we had a triple stumper at the 1200 dollars level p is for this desert that takes up large parts of argentina and chile that's the patagonia um meggie ring in a guest what are the pampas uh but you're not it's not a desert um but it is in argentina mm-hmm. but yeah that's patagonia and then uh, the $2,000 clue, locals call the bleak skeleton coast where the Atlantic meets this desert, the land God made in anger, uh, which is so hmm. just so awesome. Will guessed what is the Sahara? Uh, he was in the wrong part of Africa. Uh, they showed a map, even. But at yeah. least this time, it did not necessarily just give you the answer, because if you don't know the name of the desert there, then it's not... You know, you may know the name of the country, uh, but Ben rang in and guessed what is the Namib, and that is correct. And I have been there. I've been to the mm-hmm. Skeleton Coast. Oh, nice. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. it is bleak. <laughs> mm. We find Daily Double 2 in the Publishers category, which is another kind of literary-ish yeah. category, right? Uh, in a way. At the $800 level, Will finds it and wagers... 3,400 of his 6,600. Ben is at 12,200 at this point. Maggie's at 12,400. And he gets the clue. The name of this publisher, known for its book fairs, is a word meaning related to education. Um, It's basically just a gimme. Um, That is scholastic. I mean, come on. Yeah. (laughs) If, If you were a child a very long time ago and never had a child of your own, maybe you wouldn't know that. But, like, yeah, scholastic but... book fairs are a staple of American public education. Mm-hmm. And in the teacher's tournament, I would be shocked if anybody missed this one. Yeah. Another ex- example of where uh, Will perhaps wishes he had gone all in. Yeah. He should have. I mean, he really should have at that point. He was, he was at nearly 50% of Meggie's score, so he should have really just mm-hmm. gone for it anyway. Yeah. We got an, another oddly prophetic 
clue um, uh-huh. in the words coined in the 1920s category at the $1,200 level. On the rise and entering English in the 1920s was this political movement led by Mussolini. Maggie gets that, and that's fascism. Mm-hmm. Just gonna leave that there. Uh, three, yeah. three clues later, we get the uh, third daily double. It's at the $2,000 clue in that same category, words coined in the 1920s. And this one surprised me. I did not, I did not know that this was like coined then. Ben found it. He was in the lead. Uh, at 18,600, Maggie had uh, dropped back to 11,600, and Will was at 11,200, and Ben wagered 2,500. And the clue is right on Q, Q in quotation marks. This designation for a standard keyboard first developed for the typewriter came into use in 1929. That is QWERTY, which you got correct. Yeah. So um, the round runs out of time before they get to the 30th Mm -hmm. question. Uh, They do. Yeah. So Ben picks up one more. Maggie picks up one more. And then we run out of time. Ben is in a solid lead with 21,500. Maggie has 13,200. Will has 11,200. And we get the final Jeopardy category 18th century novels. And the clue is, the title character of this 1726 novel reaches four different lands as a result of a shipwreck, a storm at sea, pirates, and a mutiny. Will has wagered everything, 11,200, but couldn't come up with anything. What is... and it's just blank. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Maggie has the correct response with, what is Gulliver's Travels? Um, and she's wagered 8,200. Ben also has the correct response and uh, has wagered 5,001. And that brings him up uh, when you total up his scores for the two days to 34,001. Uh, Maggie has finished with 29,000 and Will with 6,000. So Ben is the winner mm-hmm. of the teacher's tournament. So we will be seeing this vocal music teacher uh, next time we do a tournament of champions. That's right. So that means that there will be at least three teachers in the tournament of champions. Of course, we knew we'd get one from the teachers tournament. That's a given. So Ben, but also Jason Zufrenary, who is topping the uh, leaderboard for the tournament of champions with 19 wins. And also Sam Cavanaugh, a five-game winner from Minneapolis. Uh, mm-hmm. who will also be there. So at least three teachers, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm forgetting some of the other people on the trackers might also be teachers, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah. So great tournament, great contestants, uh, really solid, well-played game from everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the time where we would normally plug our Patreon page and invite you to support our podcast financially, um, but that does not seem right to us at this time. Uh, in light of the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests that have begun across the country and around the world, we would like to ask you to consider giving in support and solidarity with this important movement. Please consider making a donation to your local Black Lives Matter chapter or you can find a local bail fund to donate to via communityjusticeexchange.org. Thanks.
Yeah. Seconded. So on a lighter note, Kyle, do you have guesses about the deep dive topic? I do. I have actually a lot of guesses. I had a hard time narrowing it down to three. Okay. So let me... Okay, so a couple of them, I'm, I'm wondering if you buried the lead on, because there were a couple of them that I'm like, oh, those would be good deep dives, but we... At least I talked about them a bit. So the first one I'm going to guess is the Hunley. Are you talking about the Hunley? I was so tempted to talk about the Hunley, but I didn't know basically anything about it um, and uh, didn't want to take on that research project uh, this week. Um, I'm very curious, though, but that's a no. Okay. The next one was a Daily Double that we talked about and went into detail on, I think. Uh, but you mentioned that you couldn't remember stuff about it, and that's Marbury versus Madison. Mmm, that would be a good choice also, but no. Yeah, okay. Uh, my third, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think you went for the triple stumper final Jeopardy. Are you talking about Lawrence of Arabia? I am not. You're not talking, talking about, about Larry. Ah, oh, man. <laughs> um, okay. No, uh, so is it, this... Is it a book one? It's a book one. I... I've, you know, I purposely didn't go into those categories because I'm like, it probably is, but I should guess other stuff. All right. I guess I'm predictable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I decided to go with a triple stumper from Tuesday's game, the women authors category in Double Jeopardy. And the clue was, in 1856, she published Dread, in which she depicted the deterioration of a slaveholding society. That was my. That was the next one. That was like the one I cut to be like, no, nah, I'm not going to guess Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was, it, I, I'm going with Harriet Beecher Stowe. You know that um, that seems appropriate. It's on brand for me, and also it is. Uh, it, it, it's appropriate. It is topical. Well. Yeah. Yes. So Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, was born in. 1811 in Litchfield, Connecticut. Her parents were Lyman Beecher, who was a minister, and Roxana Foote Beecher. And she was the sixth child of eight that 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 couple would have. Roxana, her mother, died of tuberculosis when Harriet was five. And her father, Lyman, remarried a year later to a woman named Harriet Porter, who became Harriet Porter Beecher, um, and they had three more children. So Harriet uh, Beecher Stowe ended up being the sixth of 11 children altogether. Several of her siblings were notable. She was not the only well-known Beecher. Um, Her brother, Henry Ward Beecher, was especially well-known as a preacher and a writer. Her sister, Catherine, was well-known as an educator and a writer. Her abolitionist views started to take shape in her uh, in her early life. In 1820, her father preached against slavery um, as the question of the admission of Missouri to the Union was an active debate. In 1824, she was enrolled in a school called the Hartford Female Seminary, where she had a pretty rigorous academic education, um, heavy focus on the classics, Uh, She did a lot of writing during her education there and was recognized for it, won some prizes, later became a teacher there. In 1832, uh, so Harriet is 21 at this point, uh, her family moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, and she moved with them. Her father had a new position as the president of Lane Theological Seminary. 
Uh, there she became a member of a literary group called the Semicolon Club uh, with some... <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> yeah. Notable members included um, both Beecher sisters, also Salmon P. Chase um, hmm. and Emily Blackwell, among others. Hmm. Uh, in 1834, Lane Seminary hosted a series of debates on slavery over the course of 18 days. Um, Harriet attended those, and they were very influential in her thinking. And in 1836, she married a professor at Lane Seminary, a man named Calvin Stowe. So at that point, she becomes Harriet Beecher Stowe. Later that same year, she has their first two children, uh, twin girls named Eliza and Harriet. If you're keeping track, there have been three people named Harriet in mm-hmm. this biography so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just a really common name. Yeah. Uh, they had a son two years later uh, named Henry Ellis Stowe. Another son two years later, Frederick William Stowe. Um, in 1843, they have a daughter, Georgiana May. And Harriet Beecher Stowe publishes her first book, a story, short story collection entitled The Mayflower. And I guess I should I should mention at this point, she was a very prolific writer. Um, she had one huge, like, blockbuster bestseller book that we're going to get to, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, but she was, you know, she was she was writing things that were for entertainment, but also edification, um, you know, trying to sort of present her point of view in novels and short stories, you know, and she was like a a moderately successful writer throughout her life um, and published, I think, over 30 books over the course of her life. And I'm not going to detail all of them. Most of them are not especially studied or like remembered, especially by history. You know, she just... Mm -hmm. You would think of her the same way you might think of, like, like a Beach Reads author now, except that she had this one extraordinarily influential work. Yeah. Uh, in 1848, her son Samuel Charles Stowe is born, and 18 months later, he ended up dying of cholera. Mm. Um, and that loss was, was a big influence in her life, um, really devastated her. They had another son in 1850, Charles Edward, and at that point they moved to Brunswick, Maine, um, where Calvin Stowe became a professor at Bowdoin College. That year also, the Fugitive Slave Act passed, um, mm. which was relevant to, uh, to Harriet's abolitionist views and, uh, and writing. In 1851, sitting in church, her story goes, she had kind of a vision of a dying slave and rushed home from church to start writing a novel um, that would become Uncle Tom's Cabin. And this novel uh, was also inspired in part by her experience of losing her child and coming to like a deeper empathy with women who were slaves and their children were slaves and their family would be separated against their will. That was the, her, the, the death of her child sort of made her think more deeply about what that must be like mm. and inspired her to um, to address that in her fiction. So she starts writing, and in June 1851, Uncle Tom's Cabin starts to be published as a serialized novel in an abolitionist publication called The National Era. And the original intention that it was that it would run for three or four uh, three or four weeks. Uh, she ended up publishing weekly installments for, I believe, 43 weeks. 
and it became really, really popular. There were a couple of weeks where it wasn't included um, and held for the next week for space reasons or deadline reasons or, or whatever the case may be. And there would be this uh, outpouring of letters from readers angry that, uh, you know, <laughs> that they'd uh, been waiting all week for the next installment of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yes. Where was it? So it was really popular. And due to its popularity, um, a publisher named John P. Jewett con- contacted her to ask about publishing it in book form. And so in 1852, Uncle Tom's Cabin was published as a, a novel in book form. It, it was printed in two volumes. Each volume had uh, three full-page engraved illustrations um, by Hammett Billings, which is unusual for, uh, for the time. And uh, 3,000 copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin sold on the day of its release, uh, which was March 20, 1852. The initial run of 5,000 copies sold out, I think, within days. And in 1852 alone, 300,000 copies of the novel were sold. Um, So it was the huge bestseller. If you're not familiar with Uncle Tom's Cabin, I'll do a brief overview. Um, It's pretty melodramatic in its style. It follows the lives of two main characters. Um, Eliza is one, and Uncle Tom, of course, is the other with many minor characters coming and going over the course of the story. At the beginning of the novel, both Eliza and Uncle Tom are enslaved to uh, Arthur and Eliza Shelby. Arthur Shelby needs to uh, raise some money, so he decides to sell the two of them. Um, But Eliza runs away, and her portion of the story focuses on her escape to Canada, her reunion with her husband, um, evading slave catchers, Um, And there's also an encounter with Quakers as part of her story. Hmm. Tom is uh, sold via a slave trader to uh, the St. Clair family and meets a saintly little girl named Eva St. Clair. He actually uh, saves her from drowning in a river before the family has, has bought him. And the father, Augustine, buys him out of gratitude, which is a weird sentence to say. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but but given this heroic action, buys him. Eva's a pretty sickly little girl, um, very pious. Um, she's supposed to be kind of an inspiring religious figure. Mm-hmm. Tom is with them for two years, and eventually Eva dies. Um, but before she dies, she has a vision of heaven, which she describes to the, to the family. And that vision motivates uh, Augustine St. Clair to decide to free Tom. But after Eva has died, but before Augustine has freed Tom, he is stabbed in a dispute outside a tavern. So he dies intending to free Tom, but not having actually done it. His widow sells Tom to uh, Simon Legree, who's kind of this very Uh, famous... Very Simon Legree. Yep, there he is. So the rest of the novel is this kind of growing antipathy between like Simon Legree is is evil and it plays out over the course of the rest of the novel. Um, Simon Legree orders Tom to uh, whip a fellow slave and Tom refuses and it's beaten viciously. Simon Legree vows that he is going to crush Tom's Christian faith. Tom's um, piety has been kind of a topic throughout and that his faith is sustaining him. Tom encourages two female slaves, um, one who is like essentially a sex slave not that Harriet Beecher Stowe would have been like super explicit about that, but it's but it's clear. Yeah. Um, Tom urges them to escape and then refuses to give information about their whereabouts. 
And at that point, uh, Simon Legree orders the overseers to kill Tom, who forgives them as he dies. And then at that point in the narrative, George Shelby, the son of Arthur Shelby, that first uh, slave owner I'd mentioned, arrives to buy Tom's freedom. But alas, he's too late. Tom has died. Um, So, you know, Uncle Tom, the sort of tragic, loyal, dutiful slave. As it turns out, one of the two women that Tom had encouraged to escape, Cassie, is the long-lost mother of Eliza, that other that other enslaved woman who had made her escape earlier in the book. And the escaped characters meet by coincidence. Uh, they escape to Canada. They met, end up making their way to Liberia. Hmm. Um, and uh, that is, that's the happy ending for them, is uh, free life in Liberia. Oh. Yeah. The popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin provoked the emergence of what's called anti-Tom literature, which is... Um, novels by uh, pro-slavery Southerners portraying enslaved life as like positive, bucolic, slaves are mm-hmm. happy with their station in life. There's numerous novels kind of trying to present like the, the joy of being enslaved. Right. Um, <laughs> it's providing uh, for them. It would be it would be easier to look back on that part of history if people didn't still sometimes make that case as if that was a legitimate oh, thing to say. God, I know. Yeah. Copyright law in the 1850s Ooh, was now we're not getting to the fun part. Oh yeah, it was it was not what it is now. Um, there were numerous stage adaptations of Uncle Tom's Cabin, all of which were unauthorized and none of which gave assent to Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, she also didn't receive royalties from the British version of her book, which was a huge bestseller bestseller also because there was no international copyright agreement. She sued to try to get royalties for unauthorized translations into other languages, but she lost. Uh, The ruling was that her copyright was for the English words she herself had written and nothing else. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Which is kind of bonkers, although I'm I'm also aware there's there's plenty of history of uh, white women profiting off of their opinions about race relations and so yeah so i can't get too too out and she did fine so i can't i I can't get that outraged on her behalf but it's it's kind of incredible to think that there were all of these uncle tom's cabin adaptations and translations and things floating around and that because of the way copyright law was at the time that um that none of them were uh made any difference to her financially right yeah In 1852, uh, Calvin Stowe was appointed a professor at Andover Theological Seminary, so the family moved to Andover, Massachusetts. That was the same year Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. In 1853, Harriet Beecher Stowe published a book called A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was in response to accusations that her depictions of slavery were exaggerated or overwrought. So she put together this whole volume um, defending her depiction using accounts of her experiences and her conversations, uh, speeches she'd heard, um, excerpts from sources like letters, news articles, um, excerpts from books, uh, transcripts, all to sort of make the case that the way she depicted slavery in Uncle Tom's Cabin um, was based on her research and her knowledge of the subject. Mm -hmm. 
1853, she did a speaking tour in England. The book was very popular there. And then in 1856, she published her second novel, which was entitled Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp. Um, and that's the one that the Missed Jeopardy clue was about. It was ultimately much less successful, um, set in the Great Dismal Swamp of Virginia and North Carolina. And it focused on two interconnected slaveholding families with this kind of complex web of characters. There were all these like half brothers and this one's married to that one. It's, it's I, I couldn't quite keep track of it all the way um, when I was reading summaries. But the plot revolves around two court cases. What, one of them involves a, an enslaved woman who's hired out by her owner. And then the person who's hired her intends to punish her for something, but she resists that. And the person who has hired her shoots her. Um, and then the owner sues the hirer for loss of property. So that's one court case that's uh, that, that the book is structured around. Um, and the other court case involves an emancipated slave who then inherits a plantation, um, but then through legal machinations is stripped of her uh, inherited holdings and returned to slavery. Mm. And what scholars seem to say about this book is that Stowe is trying to make the case that slavery corrupts the whole like legal judicial system. There's not, there's not any order to be seen in all of these legal proceedings. Right. And then the title Dread actually refers to kind of a peripheral character, um, a slave who is planning to lead an insurrection, but ends up being influenced by the faith of a loyal or like a, the loyal seems like the wrong word, but he, there's some slave he meets who is, who is, um, a pious Christian and also not involved in the uprising, but ultimately, um, based on her influence, he decides instead of leading an insurrection, he leads his faction to escape to freedom. So that's Dread. In 1857, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's 19-year-old son, Henry, drowned, sadly. Um, yeah, lots of tragedy in her life. A couple years later, she goes on a speaking tour in Europe. Um, she also publishes a novel called The Minister's Wooing, which is kind of a satirical take on Calvinism. In 1862, uh, the Civil War is raging and she meets with President Lincoln. There are not detailed accounts of what happened in that meeting, but the brief notes that we have from her and others who were there uh, indicate that it was very droll. Um, <laughs> everyone says that it was funny and they laughed a lot. And one of her children said that he greeted her with uh, the words, so you are the little woman who wrote the book that started this great war. Mm-hmm. I believe Although that other people say that's exaggerated. It but, might be, but that was a Jeopardy yeah. clue, I think, not too long ago. Yeah. Uh-huh. In 1864, they moved from Massachusetts to Connecticut. And uh, in 1866, after the Civil War is over, they establish a winter home in Florida near Jacksonville. You would think that Harriet Beecher Stowe wouldn't be too well-loved in the South, but she reported only positive experiences with her neighbors there, and she helped establish a school for freed slaves. In 1869, she co-authored kind of an early feminist work with her sister, Catherine Beecher, a work called The American Woman's Home, um, advocating for like respect and recognition for women, I believe, in the domestic sphere. And uh, in 1873, they moved to their final home in Hartford. 
Um, so her writing career spanned 51 years. Uh, she published 30 books and numerous short stories, poems, articles, and hymns. And uh, she's best remembered for Uncle Tom's Cabin, but she had a, she had a long and productive writing career. Later in life, uh, in the 1870s, there was a scandal that her brother was involved in, Henry Ward Beecher. He was uh, like a well-known preacher and writer. He was accused of adultery. Mm. Um, Harriet was on his side and didn't believe the accusations, but also spent most of the time in Florida until the controversy sort of died down. And then once she was up in Hartford, she was one of the founders of the Hartford Art School, which later was... um, uh, incorporated incorporated into the University of Hartford. I mentioned there was a lot of tragedy in her life. Four of her seven children actually died before she did. Um, I mentioned her infant son who died of cholera and her 19-year-old son who drowned. Another son fought in the Civil War and then later as a veteran became an alcoholic, moved to California and was never heard from again, so presumably died. Oof. Um, Yeah. And then she had a daughter, Georgiana, who um, was given morphine during childbirth and afterwards to ease her pain, um, became addicted and died from that. Yeah. Her husband died in 1886 and Harriet declined pretty rapidly after that. It's likely that she was suffering from Alzheimer's. um, And uh, anecdotally, it seems like people who are suffering from Alzheimer's. Often the, the the loss of a spouse often is the loss of coping mechanisms, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they say she declined rapidly after her husband died. And late in life, she spent hours every day um, believing herself to be writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. She didn't remember that she'd already written it. And so she thought it was a writing project she was undertaking and she would spend hours on it every day. And in fact, actually wrote, like, produced large sections of the book verbatim, believing her, herself to be writing, but actually having memorized her own work. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, continued to live with Alzheimer's or, you know, whatever the case may be for, for some years, um, and ultimately died in 1896. So that's Harriet Beecher Stowe. Huh. Yeah. I, I should say I, that... Obviously, it's an important, influential work. Also problematic. Um, uh, A number of negative racial stereotypes uh, come from that book. You know, uh, the the phrase Uncle Tom is not seen as a positive thing and and for good reason. Right. Um, So, yeah, it's it's uh, it was really important. It was a good force in the world, but it is not without its flaws as a work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's Harriet Beecher Stowe. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I knew, like, nothing about her. So, yeah. Other than Uncle Tom's Cabin. So pretty interesting figure. So are you ready for a quiz? Oh, I've been waiting. All right. Um, so this is a quiz um, sort of loosely structured around abolition and Harriet Beecher Stowe. Okay. All right. Late in life, Harriet Beecher Stowe became a neighbor to another writer whose work contributed to American antipathy toward slavery. By this time, Stowe was suffering from dementia, and the famously sharp-tongued author did not spare her, depicting her as a pathetic, doddering figure in his autobiography. 
Who was that Connecticut Yankee? Oh. I mean, Connecticut Yankee points to Mark Twain, so I'm going to go with Mark Twain. You are correct. It's Mark Twain. Oh, bummer, dude. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I figured I'd, I'd give you a softball on the Thanks. first one with a, with, a, with a big clue in there. Yeah, um, yeah he, he lived across the street from her. So yeah, in his autobiography, he wrote, Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was a near neighbor of ours in Hartford with no fence between. In those days, she made as much use of our grounds as of her own in pleasant weather. I'm not sure if that's like shade or if people just were, were in each other's yards all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> her mind had decayed and she was a pathetic figure. She wandered about all the day long in the care of a muscular Irish woman assigned to her as a guardian. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's... It's interesting that they were that they were next door neighbors. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so you are at ten points. Yes. All right. Question two: A Pulitzer Prize winning 2016 novel by Colson Whitehead is an alternate history of antebellum America. In it, the titular system is not a metaphor, but more literal. Whitehead writes. Two steel rails ran the visible length of the tunnel, pinned into the dirt by wooden cross ties. The steel ran south and north, presumably, springing from some inconceivable source and shooting toward a miraculous terminus. What is the title of the novel which reimagines the route to freedom? Yeah, I, I, I had recently heard this, that there was a, a novel that came out rather recently. I, I, I believe it's just called The Underground Railroad. It is just called the Underground Railroad. Yeah, um, yeah, and it is a worthy read. Yeah, so uh, the the character um, uh, attempts to escape to freedom via an actual railroad where you like you find a safe house and then like climb down a, a ladder to the deep underground and and take a, a literal uh, train hmm. um, north. It's dense, and there's a lot of history behind it, and it's fascinating. Obviously, no history of a literal underground railroad, but uh, right, yeah, um, yeah. It was it was a really interesting read. All right, so twenty points, nice. Uh, question three: um, Uncle Tom's Cabin was serialized in the abolitionist paper of the National Era, but there was a better known, I think, abolitionist paper published by William Lloyd Garrison. Name that freedom-seeking publication. Oh. Nuts, I know this. Or, I should say, I knew this. Mm. I know that feeling. Um, uh, I don't think I'm going to pull... I know it's... Or at least I'm pretty sure it's something kind of like, you know, noble and heroic sounding. Or, like... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Alright, it is The Liberator. The Liberator, yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. But no harm of foul, you're still at 20 points. And here comes question four. Um, modern campaigns for more ethical consumption include commodities like fair trade coffee and free range eggs. But an early movement for more ethical consumption took place in late 18th and early 19th century England. What piece of serveware was adorned with messages to indicate the abolitionist views and buying habits of the host? Piece of serveware. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why it's sticking in my mind, but I want to say a spoon. Like a. Yeah, I'll say a spoon. That is 
not a bad guess. And actually, I feel like I should check and make sure. I did not see anything about spoons. Does it have something to do with tea? Feel like it would have it something does to have do so, with tea. It does have something to do with tea. Specifically, it has to do with sugar. And people would buy sugar that was not produced by slaves. It was produced in, in other regions of the world. Mm. Um, most of the sugar came um, from slave plantations. Um, in the Caribbean. Uh, predominantly in the West Indies, is, yeah. my, is my understanding. Um, and so people would buy ethically sourced sugar and then have a sugar bowl. A sugar bowl. That would, okay. that would, yeah, sugar bowl is the answer here. A sugar bowl that would say um, that uh, the sugar was not made using slave labor. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think that is just what's sticking in my head because I was thinking like a sugar spoon or something like that. Yeah, so. that, that totally makes sense. But pictures of... Um, Anti-slavery sugar bowls are, are pretty neat, and they're like antique items, you know, like collector's items now. Nice. And museum pieces, I think. All right. Uh, question. The title character of Dread was almost certainly named after Dread Scott, as that case worked its way to the Supreme Court while Stowe was writing. However, the title character is modeled not after Dread Scott, but rather after two other historical figures. One lived in Charleston, South Carolina, after buying his own freedom, and was accused of and executed for conspiring to lead a failed 1822 uprising that would have involved killing slaveholders and escaping to Haiti. The other led a four-day rebellion in Southampton County, Virginia in 1831, killing approximately 55 to 65 people before the rebellion was suppressed. For five points each, what are the names of these two men? I'm pretty sure the second one is Nat Turner. Mm-hmm. And the first one is escaping me. This is another name that I knew and have not thought about in a while. Mm-hmm. I am going to go with Smith. All right. Uh, Denmark VC is the other one. That is def- decidedly not Smith. <laughs> it's not, no. <laughs> uh, but Nat Turner is correct. Okay. So you are at 25 points. Um, and the final question, we're going to call the category stage and screen. Stage and screen. That helps me not at all. So I am going to go with a mere 10 points. All right. Here is your question. In this Broadway musical turned film, there is a play within a play where characters present an adaptation of Uncle Tom's Cabin. The book's message of freedom comes through, but certain embellishments to the plot are made, including Buddha causing the river to freeze so that Eliza can escape across the ice flows to freedom. Name the musical. A musical with a play within a play that involves... Buddha. Um, I am not aware of this immediately, so I'm going to have to try and reason some things out. Okay, did you say it was a musical turned movie? Yes. Okay. Involving Buddha and using it at that time. Uh, I'm going to go with something more time appropriate, and perhaps he did this on purpose to connect it uh, to a a learned league question from this season, but I'm going to go with... uh, the King and I, or Anna. You are correct. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I tried to. I tried to make it different enough from anything in the Learned League question. Um, sure. Yeah, but yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's like Act Two of The King and I opens with 
the characters presenting a Siamese version of Uncle Tom's cabin, even as two of the characters plan to flee because I think because they're in love. Uh, I think it's like a forbidden love thing. Um, sure. Yeah. I remember seeing the, um, the movie when I was a kid and yeah. that, uh, that scene of, um, of them presenting Uncle Tom's cabin sort of stuck with me. Oh, it, it did not stick with me. Man, I watched that in elementary school and I have not seen it since. I, I just probably didn't have the context for Uncle Tom's Cabin at that time, so... Yeah. I was probably just like, Whoa, this is a movie that I'm watching in school, so I don't really have to pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, you have finished with 35 points. All right. So, I will congrats. take it. Yeah. Maybe some of our listeners got some of those. Um, maybe some of our listeners learned some things. I learned about the abolitionist sugar bowls while I was researching this. I had heard, but couldn't actually verify, that the custom of putting honey into tea may also have been popularized as part of a sugar boycott. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Well, now I feel like a real American when I put honey in my tea. Yeah, but I couldn't find, like, clear historical confirmation that, like, that was definitely the time when it started or became popular or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. But, uh, but that was a that was a fun little rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. Speaking of our listeners, uh, thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. It is a delight. And thank you, Kyle, for potting with me. Oh, of course. Of course, as always. Listeners, make sure to subscribe and uh, give us a review or rating, if you would, on if, if your podcatcher happens to allow that. That would help us out a bunch. Uh, again, we are encouraging you to, rather than look at our Patreon, direct your funds to some of the worthy movements and causes that are, uh, that are active right now in our country. Look into it yourself. There are a lot of, a lot of different options, a lot of local options. Find something that you can feel good about getting behind. I guarantee it won't be hard. Mm-hmm. Tell your friends about our podcast in these strange times. It is such a comfort to watch Jeopardy and then to talk about Jeopardy. Um, maybe they'd enjoy it too. Yeah, maybe maybe your friends need some sort of vestige of knowledge in this time of absolute absurdity. Mm. <laughs> if you want to find us on social media, we're on Facebook at Potent Potables. We're on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email is potentpotablescast at gmail.com and you can find us on the internet at potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week to talk about another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.